it's me, it's me, it's Mr. Sensational Gino V, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with very special episode 91 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots radio network. And again, to you, the tens of ones in the listening audience, if for some reason, somehow, you are stumbling upon this show, you are coming here in a vacuum, you are not familiar with the product that we create here. This is a podcast where I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, an ordinary average, unremarkable, middle-aged individual plumb the depths of my psyche, uh, the depths of my soul, to reach in to those existential guts and pull out content to share with you in the form of takes, thoughts. I always run out, I, I, I feel like I should have a rap about what I'm offering to you, takes, thoughts, I never, I never get it down right. I, I, I feel like I say three things, but they're always three different. I always say takes, but I don't know about the other two. I don't know. I share you some, some stuff that you didn't need to know, didn't want to know, but you are going to receive anyway. And I do so by way of our generous uh, host, generous patron, station boss, IC Robots, of the eponymous IC Robots Radio Network. Um, home to our show, but home also to IC Robots himself's great work, such as the world's famous show, such as the Marvel, or the audio handbook, rather, of the Marvel Universe, which actually has its own feed. Search that one up. If you're not already subscribed, search that one up on your podcast purveyor of choice, your Apple Podcast, your Spotify, whatever. Um, first look up IC Robots Radio if you haven't already. Um, like, subscribe, etc., etc. And then look up Audio Handbook of the Marvel Universe and you will find um, kind of what's been, um, not, not that anything else is getting neglected, but, but sort of, uh, I, I feel like that's been uh, ISR's sort of um, kind of new primary project. And again, I don't know. I'm probably saying it wrong because it's not like other stuff isn't getting the same amount of love for him. But uh, he's on a roll with the, uh, the the Marvel stuff lately. And when I tell you it's Marvel stuff, don't get it twisted. This isn't some uh, boring paint-by-numbers uh, corporate Marvel um, dullness. This is uh, someone who came of age with the characters, with the content of the Marvel Universe, uh, much like I did, you know, back in the day, as it were. Um, kind of revisiting those characters, kind of looking at where they came from, where they're going, and um, just in his own unique, idiosyncratic way. So even if, just like anything else on the IC Robots Radio Network, it does not matter. You do not have to be a Marvel fanboy or fangirl or fan person. You do not have to have any prior Marvel uh, knowledge. You don't even have to care about Marvel, but it is just the the enjoyment of listening to someone talk about a subject in a way that only they can, bringing their personal perspective to a topic of interest and turning it into something that uh, you get to hear how, how it appeals to them, even if it doesn't appeal to you. And to me, that is the... Uh, Best sort of content there is. Personality-driven explorations of topic areas of passion for 
the person in question, sharing it with you, the listener. With that said, let's continue um, on to today's episode 91 as we march ever closer to episode 100, which is going to be some sort of milestone for this show. I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how, but I just feel like why wouldn't episode 100 of a show that was unlikely to get this far, that was um, off the airwaves for a number of years, um, to get to 100... It's no big deal for like the, the 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 heavier hitters in the podcast world, but for 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 this this one individual, I feel like a hundred is going to be kind of a uh, kind of a round number or something. I don't know. Who knows? Um, where were we? Ah, uh, yes. One bit of housekeeping news um, that is probably of interest to no one but myself, but it, it may very well affect the fate of this show, the future of this show. Um, Again, again, probably more likely on my end um, as the creator than on your end, the listener. But um, I am, as of today, as of today, I am a credentialed, albeit 30-day emergency credentialed, teacher in the state of California. That's right. I am now credentialed to teach for up to 30 days in a specific teacher's classroom, which in other words, it's a, it's a uh, legalese way of saying that I am now a substitute teacher. I've not begun working in the classroom yet. I've not even been offered my first gig, but I'm all I'm on the precipice. I'm all good to go. I just have to get um, been processed by the county. I just have to be processed by the specific district that I'm going to be working for. And apparently by next week, I should be in the classroom. Um, but it's interesting. I, um, in order to get that credential, I needed to uh, show that I had some rudimentary ability to read, write, and uh, what, what is it? The, the, um, the mutants are often... <laughs> A certain type of mutant is, is often taken with this idea. The, 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 the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Don't tell them that's not actually an R. It's an A. But uh, getting down back to the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic. So, yeah, I had to pr- pr- prove that I, I'm a competent individual um, in those three areas, so that I'm not just going into the classroom to teach critical race theory. I'm not just going into the classroom to try to get all the children to change their um, gender identity. I'm learning them the the building blocks too, folks. I'm, the, the the previous was was a joke too. Before you get uh, worked up into a frenzy, um, but in any case, in, in order to show this um, qualification, one can either um, in the state of California take a horrific seeming standardized test called the CBEST test. I forget what CBEST stands for. I would be willing to bet money that the C and CBEST stands for California. I'd be half willing to bet money that the T and CBEST stands for teaching or teacher. I don't know about the rest. Google it because I'm not going to. In any case, you can take the CBEST test and there's a CBEST test that you take to, to show that you can read and write and there's one you can take to show that you can uh, arithmetic. And then if, if you fail either of those, um, an angry Midwestern man comes crashing through a wall and starts beating you with a ruler. Uh, but, uh, and in my mind, he looks sort of like Engineer Dern. Now, that was a joke. I'm kidding here. I'm full of jokes today. Um, but uh, where was I? Oh, so um, you, can, you can take these tests... Or you can show that you took a college course um, 
between all of your underwater basket weaving and critical race theory and gender studies classes, if, if you took any kind of English course or arithmetic course and you got a B minus or uh, better, which I guess would be a B minus, a B, a B plus, an A minus, an A, or an A plus, but it can't be less than a B minus. It can't be a C plus. It has to be a B minus or better. If you had a B minus or better in any kind of math or English class that fulfills the requirement to show that you are a... Uh, uh, competent enough individual to um, teach the youth for at least a day. So anyway, I knew for a fact that um, I had this ace when it came to uh, reading and writing. Because those... Uh, hey, you know what? It's it's like not even two R's. It's, it's one R, a W... It's an R, W, and an A. The R's, the W's, and the A's. I don't know why the, these... Uh, these like uh, angry old, olden timers uh, are, they're mad that the people aren't learning how to read and write, yet they're, they're referencing the three R's. Go figure. Um, but anyway, um, I knew I had that ace because I was an English major in college, and um, I always got A's in English classes. Math was a little iffier, although I knew, I, I was almost confident that I had gotten a B in one math class. Um, but, you know, we're talking about classes that I took in the 1990s. So in any case, as part of the application process, I had to uh, send my college transcripts to the county substitute teacher coordinator that was setting me up. And I sent them to her, but I did not look at them myself. I just sent them to her. I, didn't want, I, I hate looking at old records like that. I don't want to know. I, I don't like go, going down memory lane. I don't like revisiting all that stuff. So I sent them to her, and late in the process, she sent me an email, and she's like, hmm, I have your transcripts here, and I'm not seeing a math class with a B- minus or better. Am I missing something? And I was like, man, I could have sworn, sworn I got a B in a math class. So I had to go... Online, look up my transcripts, and these were from the Santa Rosa Junior College. And it turns out, I only took three math classes in the entirety of my um, college career. Three math classes. Two that I had to take because my math record in high school was so spotty. Two, two math classes I had to take just to get me to the one math class I had to take to fulfill my college requirements. Um, and it turns out I did get a B in the first of those three. I got a B, a C, and a C. And I'm not sure if those Cs were actually Cs or if I smartened up and realized I could start taking them credit, no credit, because they weren't for my major. But in any case, one was a bona fide B. So I sent that back to her. And she's like, oh, okay. looks." Great. I think she just overlooked that class. It was an elementary algebra class. Got a B. Uh, it's really scary to look back at those old transcripts because I spent a good 10 years finishing a four-year degree. And my advice to anyone out there um, when it comes to college, I'm, I don't know why I'm giving this advice because anyone listening to the show is well past uh, the point of no return with college, I would imagine. But uh, either do it or don't do it, whatever. But if you are going to do it, just get it over with. Because it, it, like at the time... It seemed like this insurmountable thing that I kept putting off, and I would like drop classes, fail classes, and retake classes, this, that, and the third, and years passed, and years passed, and years passed. But at this point, this far in the future, dude, four years is nothing 
You know, it would have taken like, you know, four years of annoyance rather than 10 years of annoyance. I don't know. So if you, if you are going to do college, um, just do it quickly, I guess. I don't know. Take it from me because I sure didn't. But anyway, it was funny to look at my old transcripts because it was like A A A A A A F F F F F F A A A A F F A A F F A A F F A A F F A A C F F F A A A A A A F F F F C C A A A A. It was just really weird, really weird. And I swear to God, I thought that at one point I had to go to the JC for some reason, and they were looking at my crazy transcript, and the person was like, oh, let me just consolidate this for you and drop all the Fs that got replaced. Because like, I would take a class, and I wouldn't drop it in time, so I'd get an F, and then I'd retake it and get an A. But then, so they all bounced each other out, but this person was saying, oh, you can get the old ones, the old Fs kind of excised off your record, but they're all still there. So I don't know if this person was just feeding me a line or what. But uh, whatever. Um, I made it through. The punchline of this story is um, I was talking to my man... Teen Wundle, at Teen Wundle on the tweets. That is at, ampersand at, T-E-E-N, numeral one, D-O-L, or I like to call him, as I like to call him, Wundle. My man Wundle. My man Wundle ran into the same um, predicament, but I think, I think, if I remember correctly, if memory serves me correctly, um, that Wundle didn't actually have a B on a math class. Although I can't really, I, I'm really not making fun of Wendell because I, I am like, I'm like a, a flip of a coin. I, you know, I'm like a, getting one assignment in on time away from from being in that same boat. But I fortunately did not have to get into that boat, and now that boat is never to be revisited again. I hope uh, because I got credentialed, and so it's all all said and done. Anyway, whatever. Supposedly that starts next week. I'll be back. Maybe if I still have time in my life to do a show. I hope I do. I think I will. I don't know. We'll see. Um, with tales from the, from the front lines, what it's actually like out there in the uh, hard, cruel world of substitute teaching. That out of the way, we are going to finish the rest of the show with a topic that we've kind of been meandering through the last uh, couple of episodes, and that is a look back at my personal history with uh, console video gaming. When last we spoke, I believe I told you about how I had received the Sears version of the Atari 2600, the Sears telegame systems, the Sears VCS. I've seen it referred to as different ways. I'm not a scholar, and I don't um, care to, to look it up, but whatever. For some reason, Sears had a license to make their own version of the Atari 2600, and, and they did, and that's what I had. Um, nifty little system um, had a glass kind of or not glass, it was a plastic, clear plastic top that you put over the console when you weren't using it. When I was not using it as a cover for the console, I would take it off and I would use it as a wrestling ring for my action figures. And I know I've told this story on the show in the, in the early version, early uh, years of this show, but I'm going to tell you again now. I uh, would use it as a wrestling ring for my action figures. And the action figures that would be wrestling were um, like those DC, uh, the ones where you squeeze the legs and the arms moved. I, what, what they call those, the, the superpowers series or something. I think it was in conjunction with a cartoon that ran briefly, a DC cartoon. Um, cartoon that featured Darkseid heavily as a villain and like his son, what, what's his son, like Kala something, Calabac, Caliban. Um, but... Uh, I had, for some reason, we had like a, a, a bunch of those toys, a bunch of those figures 
Um, and I, I feel like that was sort of a, um, uh, by the time this part of the story, I, I'm jumping all around time here cause I'm realizing this was a few years into having this, the system. Um, but let me just check here really quick on the Twitter or the Google machine. Uh, DC super powers toys. Those are those are pretty nifty looking toys. I, I like all the the bright primary colors and the, the yellow background on the ads. And um, when did they come come out? All this Google machine stuff's not helpful because like they came out in the nineteen eighties. It's like well that's a ten year run, bro. Um, uh, release date. Okay, 84, 85, and 86. That's about what I thought. And I got the console, the Atari 2600 Sears, whatever the hell, around 82. So this was a few years in this memory that I'm about to tell you now out of sequence. Um, I would use um, the lid as a wrestling ring. The wrestlers would often be superpowers figures. I remember the Martian Manhunter was like my my main adventure. He was my top star in my action figure wrestling uh, league in about the year 85, 86, and, uh, but I feel like a lot of these were kind of like my brother's toys. Cause my brother's five years younger than me. And I think I was kind of starting by, by then I was aging out of action figures, but they were still around. And, um, I had, I, even back then I had the weird OCD obsession about wrestling and who, who could beat who and all that nonsense. So I was still acting this out with the action figures, but it was like the dying days, a lot of the death rattle of my action figure playing. And, uh, I remember actually I, the Martian Manhunter was wrestling someone. I cannot remember who in the Sears telegames lid um, when my mom received a phone call and had been informed with my grandpa who was featured on last episode, the guy that got all aggro because I was playing with the robot at his house one Christmas had died. And um, I remember hearing this phone call playing with those toys. And um, it was just like the uh, ability to play with action figures just was like sucked out of me in that moment. I realized I'm just like, fiddling around with some pieces of plastic. I could no longer, it, it was that, the, the, the Christmas bell, the Polar Express. I couldn't hear, they were no longer, spe- I couldn't hear them speak. I couldn't hear the entrance music. It was all just gone. And it's not because I was super distraught about my, my grandpa's passing. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't like not close to him, but I wasn't super close to him. Uh, but I think it was just the weird, the jarring nature of, oh yeah, I'm in this continuum now of life and death. And that was, I don't know, not to get too esoteric, but that was like the, the beginning of my, my, uh, understanding of mortality. Um, and somehow that that um, led to my loss of the childhood power of, of bringing toys to life. Um, that said, uh, the uh, console that the lid belonged to got plenty of use before that and after that. Uh, we're talking. We're going back to the kind of the the early part though. Now, I left you last time with um, some talk about the game that was kind of the game of all games of that system for me, which was the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark video game which I believe I looked up uh, last time, and it came out, I think, around 82, which, again, is right around when I got this console. Um, The movie itself, I believe, came out in 81. Someone can correct me. Please feel free to. I know you will. Um, But this game was such a weird game, man. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a weird thing in general to me because I remember my dad took me to see that movie in the theater when it came out. And at that point, I think I'd only really been to see Star Wars films. Um, I think I'd seen theatrical re-releases of the first and second Star Wars movies. Um, So I knew who Harrison Ford was. 
Um, and I generally felt positively about him because I associated him with Star Wars. And as a youth, I was big into the Star Wars action figures. Uh, but my dad said he's going to take me to see this movie. And I think I saw a picture of the poster or something. And it just looked really boring. It looked like it was just about some normal middle-aged man. Or to me, I, Harrison Ford's probably young in that movie. But, you know, as a little kid, let's see, 76 to 7, 8, 9, 80, 81. As a five-year-old child, he looked like this old guy like my dad. And he's just wearing kind of normal clothes. Um, and uh, I think there was like, a, I think there's like like an airplane or something on, on the poster that I saw. Because, you know, when the guy gets chopped up in the propeller. So I thought, uh, why are we going to see this movie about old dudes with their airplanes? I, it just seemed very, where Star Wars was all science fiction and other stuff was fantasy and blah, blah. This just seemed very real world, very uninteresting to me. We went to go see that movie and it blew my mind. I didn't understand what was going on at all. But I was so taken with it. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I thought Indiana Jones was the coolest character of all time. So I loved that movie. Became a huge fan of the franchise after that. And it's funny when you go back and you see if the movie did in fact come out in 81 and the video game came out in 82. Um, it's funny how things had such a longer shelf life back then because I guess the the popular culture media, entertainment media landscape was so much more compressed. Um, it's not like another movie like Raiders... Uh, I mean, there were knockoff movies like Raiders, but you know what I mean? It wasn't like another cultural phenomenon like Raiders cropped up two weeks later like we do now, where some movie comes out, everyone's losing their mind about it for like a day, and then the next one, and I'm talking about like more like blockbustery stuff, but um, the next one comes and it's just the constant barrage and everyone kind of is on their own personal continuum of what they're into. Everything's catered specifically to your likes, your interests, your your online behavior. It, it, there, there's less of these monolithic cultural events that then last around for several years. Like, I feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, I saw it, but it was, like, in the forefront of my mind for probably three years after it came out. Um, anyway, the game was such a weird game because I, I remember sitting down, and my dad wanted to check it out, too. Um, because as we, as I mentioned last time, my dad was of that age where he, he and I were both interested in video games when the 2600 first came down the pike. He quickly lost interest. I continued my interest. Um, but at that time we were both still interested. So we were looking at this game and the instruction manual essentially was just like, um, well, play the game and see what happens. Try to figure out what's going on and, um, try to figure out what's going on. We did. I had a very hard time finding out what was going on. And for those of you who have not played the Raiders of the Lost Ark Atari 2600 video game, you play little Indiana Jones. You can make out his hat and a little stick figure. And he moves along uh, through various settings. And uh, you start off maybe like in a marketplace or something, and you have to figure out. You, basically, there's, there's a small amount of screens. There's probably like five screens. I don't know. But you have to figure out how to actually get to certain ones. You don't have access to all the different parts of the game. And uh, there's weird stuff like you end up there, there's like a marketplace that you start off in, but then eventually you end up in this black market and in the black market. If you enter on one side of the screen, you can't get to the other because you walk past some uh, individual known as the raving lunatic and the raving lunatic kills you if you pass him on the wrong side. So you have to figure out how to get to the other side. So essentially it was a early version of, um, you know, kind of a point-and-click adventure game, although you weren't pointing and clicking on things. But, it was, you know, it's the kind of game where you reach obstacles, you have to figure out which item to procure, where to drop the item to get past the obstacle to move on to the next scene. 
Um, so again, I think I probably said this last time, but it, it, it was a very, very primitive foreshadowing of that awesome Lucas Arts uh, Indiana Jones game that was for personal computers. Some years later, the name escapes me. Um, what that, I should know that. Come on, let's see, Indiana Jones. No, not Indiana. Indianapolis Colts. Indiana Jones. Lucas. Oh, it was Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Um, but we'll talk about those LucasArts-type games later in this long, sprawling, historical retrospect. For now, we're, we're, we're back on the 2600 Atari, uh, Indiana Jones game. And um, so as a, as a young child, I got very frustrated with that game. But it was an interesting thing about the 2600 that, again, I believe I spoke about last time. But you're playing this very limited scope game with just a couple screens and stick figure, little pixel-based crappy graphics. But it just felt so all-encompassing. It felt engulfing. Engulfing in a way, maybe even more so than like a truly engulfing game like Grand Theft Auto V or something where you're in a completely realized, um, you know, virtual reality world. Um, somehow felt even more more engulfing than that. The, the this, these little primitive dots and beep-boop sounds. Um, so I couldn't really get anywhere with the game, but I just kept trying, and I kept doing the same three things over and over and over again. And part of it, too... Time warps the, 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 the perception. You know, in my memory, it feels like I was sitting there for like 20 hours playing this game. But I just think, you know, we spent time with electronics, with devices differently back then. So it's probably like, you know, I'd play for like 10 minutes at a time and then go watch something on TV because you'd be watching TV at pre-programmed times, you know, rather than on demand or whatever. But it felt like I was engrossed with this game. I felt like I was engulfed in this game, even though... To actually play the game in its entirety probably takes five minutes, and I wasn't even getting past like the first stage. I don't know. My dad, on the other hand, somehow, somehow figured out how not only how to play this game, but how to beat this game. And it involved all kinds of stuff that seems so counterintuitive to me as a child. And maybe if I went back and revisited now, um, at an age older than he was at the time, It'd be like, oh, of course he figured this out. But at the time, it's like, what made you think? Like, you have to, there's a screen where you're falling to your death, but if you have a certain, like, parachute item, you realize you can use that on the death screen and float over to the side and blow up this mountain to get into the side of it. I don't know. Odd stuff that I don't know how he figured out. Uh, But he did. And watching it unfold, because I would watch him play it, I mentioned last time that I had this childhood idea of these horrible, early, primitive 2600 games that there was just, if I just played it right, it, it would open up to some other dimension of gaming. That, that if you played Night Driver long enough, you could pull off to the side of the road and go into buildings. If you uh, uh, played combat long enough, you know, you would... Uh, your your uh, co-pilot would start talking to you and you, you, there'd be characters you could interact with. Um, with the Raiders of the Lost Ark game, that was almost true because my dad persevered long enough that we got to strange, uh, strange screens that I didn't even know existed and sights and sounds that you didn't know were possible in the game. And um, 
to really do it justice, I don't know if you want to, YouTube a playthrough of the game, you'll see what I'm talking about. But it was a very um, formative moment for me. If it weren't for that game, I don't know that my interest level in console gaming would have continued at the pitch that it did for as long as it did. I think Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, whatever it was called, on the Atari 2600 was really responsible for not lighting the fire, but pouring gasoline on the fire and keeping it going for another few decades for me. What else is there to say about those early 2600 days? Um, One thing that was really strange back then is how games came into the home. Because my family, we were neither affluent nor non-affluent. Like, we had plenty of money for life, but we didn't have, we weren't, like, doing a lot of extra stuff, you know. Grew up in a town, grew up in an area where lots of kids were, were, you know, vacationing different places, going skiing, uh, having lots of personal electronics at home. We didn't really have a lot of that. Part of it was was a, a, um, probably means-related. Part of it is just that my, my mom in particular is pretty frugal and she was just like, why would we spend money on that? You know? Um, so I wasn't in a family where there was going to be a ton of random video game purchasing. I remember on the flip side, this is, uh, getting a little ahead of myself, but, um, in the, uh, the NES era, the Nintendo entertainment system era, my brother knew a kid that had not only a Nintendo entertainment system, but he also had a Sega Master System. And he also had like 30 games for both systems. And of course, if you went over his house, he wouldn't want to play any of those games. Of course. But we'll get to that um, in more detail later. But we were not that house. It was a, it was a fluke that I had the, the system. And any game that came in the house was really fluke. Because I don't remember. There was the original infusion of games that somehow came with the thing. I don't remember buying a lot of games for it, but I remember games just constantly coming into the house. Um, we got an infusion of games at one point because my dad's work. My dad worked at a psychiatric hospital. And in the break room at the psychiatric hospital, they had an Atari 2600. Someone left it there, brought it there, I don't know. And they had a collection of games. And my dad would play games on his break. And at a certain point, they realized that no one else working at the psychiatric hospital used the game. So they told him, um, well, you can just take those home if you want. So he brought the games home. And those included some odd ones. Frankenstein's Monster. Frankenstein's Monster was a platformer where you were a dude and you were trying to stop Frankenstein, the Frankenstein's Monster from like, being constructed and like released. And if you didn't, if you didn't finish the, the platform maze in time, uh, Frankenstein's monster would become unleashed and start lumbering toward the screen. And eventually all the screen would just be green. Cause he was all, all up in your area, all up in your grill. Cause he had gotten out. Um, that was a big one in the household. My dad also brought home a game called Egomania, where you played a bear wearing a hat. And um, depending on, the difficulty level setting on the console. You, the hat could be super wide brim, like a Panama hat, or just a little top hat. <clears throat> but he was wearing it upside down, and up at the top of the screen, 
there was a bird that was, uh, uh, speaking of raving lunatics, it was like the raving lunatic of birds, this crazed bird that was running back and forth dropping eggs. And you had to try to catch all the eggs in your hat. And after you caught a certain amount of um, eggs, you get a little short time period where the bird was vulnerable. And I think it played that music. Was it like... It was... Like that song or some song like that, and you had a chance to fire eggs back at the bird and you could hit the bird and then the bird's feathers would blow off and it would like fly off the screen, but then it would come back. It's another one of those moments. I always thought that if you did it long enough, it would show, like the bird would go somewhere and you'd get to see like where the bird came from and the game would change that way, but nah, never happened. Um, <clears throat> remember, uh, so we got those games. I had Joust, that came later. No idea where that came from. Um... Ended up with the the much maligned E.T. game, another one that ended up in my household. I no clue from where. Um, <clears throat> everyone speaks so ill of that game, and it led to the great video game crash and all that stuff. I remember thinking that game was awesome when I was a kid. I was getting to play as E.T. I mean, in, in like 1980-whatever. Um, I don't know. Pe- people are, are spoiled, I guess. I thought, I thought that was a great game. The few games I can remember purchasing. One was one of the most disappointing video games I've ever experienced, uh, even to this day, which was the game Sword Quest. Was it Earthworld was the first one? And these Sword Quest games were these games that came out... um, Let me check out the year here. Sword Quest. Atari... Um, imagine that another product of 1982. So I guess 1982 was like my, the, the pinnacle Atari year for me. Um, but sword quest was a game that was, was much hyped. I think they did a lot of advertising in, um, comic books. There even was a sword quest comic book. I think that, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, it, it, it came with the game. Um, but it was like a DC deal. And so these games presented that there were going to be this insane kind of multimedia adventure where there'd be clues in the comic, clues in the instruction book, clues in the game, and you would be going to be going through these places looking for, I, I guess, maybe for a sword. I don't know. There was going to be three games, Earth, Fire, Water. Um and let's see, just, just on the old Wikipedia here, it's saying the game follows twins named Tara and Tor. Their parents were slain by King Tyrannus' guards, blah, 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 blah. They're transported to a central chamber where there's a sort of ultimate sorcery and a talisman of penultimate truth. Uh, I can't even understand. This is this, this too. Um, it was supposed to be some amazing sword and sorcery action adventure. It was literally just walking through dull rooms. Each time you walk through a room, it would be like... Or something like that, if I recall correctly. And nothing would happen. Just wandering around from nothing to nowhere. And there was so much hype behind it. It was supposed to be if you were the person that solved it, you'd get like a, a, an actual sword. Uh, yeah, you, you were going to get uh, a silver blade with an 18-karat gold handle covered with diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, and rubies that was valued at $50,000. It just it seemed like it was going to be the coolest thing totally in my wheelhouse of all time. And it was just... Such nothing, such a downer. I do remember 
somehow getting my parents to buy me the first one because there was just so much hype around it. And and I think even my dad was interested because we're all like, we're, we're going to do this. And then he saw it and he's like, uh, and I think that actually led to him sort of um, falling off with the, with the Atari after that because uh, he was just realizing it was never going to get as epic as that Indiana Jones game ever again. Although he was a big, uh, he was big into that Frankenstein's monster game as well. But um, so Sword Quest was a huge disappointment. I do remember buying Earthworld. I somehow ended up with Fireworld. Um, and I don't know how that came into my house. Where were these games coming from? It's like it's almost as if there was like a portal somewhere. But there was just someone just chucking them, chucking them into the household. That was something I remember. Uh, the magical thinking of youth. At one point, um, this would be more like eighty five, eighty six, which kind of makes sense because be after a few years of having the twenty six hundred, I was getting kind of bored of it. Um, I was always curious about ColecoVision and Intellivision consoles. Never had either of them. Um, but uh, we lived in this apartment complex in like 85, and uh, I saw an Intellivision box in the communal dumpster that we all threw our trash into, and I convinced myself that I think someone accidentally threw out an Intellivision. And um, I figured when my parents went out there to take out the trash, they would find it there and bring it into the house. Because look, someone just threw this away. Now it's yours. I don't know why I didn't just go check, but I just I, I was convinced that there was this Intellivision console just sitting, sitting in the dumpster. But I'm sure it was just the box. Um, another uh, actual purchase I recall is a very odd one, and let me look this up really quick. Pike's Peak Atari Wiki. Let's see if this even has a. Here we go. So this is a game that came out in '83. Although I think I we bought it, my brother and I, more like eighty four, uh, maybe even eighty five, because it was like again our interest in the in the Atari was waning. But for some reason, we bought this game at Toys R Us, and it was this game put out by a publisher called Zonox X O N O X, and the gimmick was the game the cartridge was double sided, so it was two games and you could flip it around and play either. Um, on one side was a game called Ghost Manor. Ghost Manor was a very weird game where you could play as the girl, capital, as they put it in this wiki, or the boy, capital, capital G girl, capital B boy. And when you turn on the game, the girl and the boy are hanging out together in, in a cemetery, and then you pick which one, and then you go inside the house, and it's like a little uh, cheesy platformer. Um, but uh, I just remember my brother and I playing that game for hours. I'm not sure what the fascination was or why we bought it. I think we were just kind of bored because we, and I remember buying this game because we hadn't, the our collection of 2,600 cartridges had kind of stagnated and I think this game was like pennies on the dollar because it was after the great video game crash. So there was just like shovelware they were trying to get rid of at Toys R Us. Um, so it was novel to us that was new. So we played that one quite a bit and then on the flip side was a game called Pike's Peak where you're some dope trying to climb, climb a mountain. Played that one a lot too. These games were so... Poorly constructed, I, mean, I don't mean all Atari 2600 games, I mean Pike's Peak and Ghost Manor, but poorly constructed, uh, low budget, but somehow we were just there playing it endlessly. Um, as we are getting deep here, and I don't want to uh, go too much longer, I'll just give a few final shout outs. Shout out to Krull on the Atari 2600, Krull, a, a phenomenal 2600 game that again, showed up in the house, no clue how, no clue why. 
but uh, played the heck out of Krull. Shout out to Venture. Shout out to Berserk. Shout out to um, uh, Defender. Without Atari 2600 Defender, I would not be talking about mutants on this show. That's where that term comes from. Um, Shout out to Atari video game uh, box art that always made the games look 10,000 times grimmer, graver, and gave them more gravitas than they could ever possibly have from their own merit. Um, Shout out to this one boxing game that uh, was like one of the last games that I really played the heck out of on the Atari. Let me see what the heck that was. Atari... It was really in the dying days. where I might have even had a Nintendo at this point, point. I still played this game. It was Atari 2600 Real Sports Boxing. That was a great boxing game. I don't remember exactly why, but I remember being very taken with it. Um, shout out to, uh, because it was, oh, you know what? It was, I think it was probably right before I got a Nintendo, because it almost looks like a Nintendo game. It almost looks like pro wrestling for the NES. Um, shout out to Pitfall. Shout out to Pitfall 2. You know, we're going to start off talking about Pitfall 2 next time, and that's going to be our segue into um, the next phase of video gaming. Pitfall 2. Um, I'm probably forgetting a lot of other stuff, but folks, um, that was very special episode 91. I will do my best to be back next week. It might be a little weird because I don't know exactly what my schedule is going to be like, but hey, I'll figure out some way to make it happen. In the meantime, it's me, it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino V for the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network signing off.